0: The text of Scripture for tonight's preaching is found in John chapter 5, verse 25 to verse 36. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And He has given Him authority to execute judgment, because He is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not deemed true. There's another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, as you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me.
1: A welcome to those of you at the North Campus and the South Campus. Thank you so much for being with us. And I invite you and those of us here to to pray as we begin. There is coming a day, perhaps sooner than anyone knows, when we will rise from the dead. All the dead will rise. Some to the resurrection of life, eternal. And some to the resurrection of judgment, eternal. O God, I ask... That you would make Christ magnificent in our eyes in this service. That we would understand his mighty voice that calls all the dead back from the graves and then appoints them their destinies. May we tremble Lord before the almighty power of the voice of Jesus Christ. And may there be a deep, deep sense of security that He has come into the world in advance of His second coming that He might die for sinners, rise again, and forgive us and justify us and make us His own forever. So come, save those who do not yet believe Strengthen the faith, deepen the faith of those who do, and glorify your Son. In his name I pray, amen. I'm going to talk about your resurrection from the dead, Lord willing, and about the role of Jesus and his mighty voice in raising you from the dead. If Jesus does not come back before, you will all die. It's a sobering thought. You will all die or you will be alive when he comes. And you should call this to mind often in your life. When he comes, you will be raised from the dead, either to the resurrection of life, Or to the resurrection of judgment. Now, first, why does the Apostle John tell us about these things? What good does it do to know this? There are people who think it's unhelpful to know these things, distracting from the task at hand to know these things. Why Why would he tell us about these future events? So let me step back for a few minutes and talk again about how the gospel of John works to do God's will in your life. We don't meet here for nothing. We meet here because God shows up in His Word and does things in people's lives that honor Him. Chapter 20 verse 31. These are written, in other words, this book that I have just written, John says, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and may be- and believing have life in his name. So John is telling us about our resurrection and the voice of Jesus that brings it about so that we would... Believe in Him as the Son of God and believing, have eternal life in His name. That's why He's telling us about the voice of Jesus to raise the dead, including all of you. The design of this gospel is to awaken faith in unbelievers, and there are, I'm sure, Many in this room who are not born again through the living and abiding word of God yet. And so the purpose of my preaching and the purpose of John's writing is that God Almighty would awaken, bring about, create faith. In your hearts, and you would leave this room believing having come in an unbeliever. That's the first purpose. The second purpose is that the believers are to read the same gospel and have their faith strengthened and deepened and preserved through the Word of God. When it talks about faith coming by hearing and hearing by the Word, that doesn't just mean at the front end of your Christian life. Preaching and reading the Bible and immersing yourself in the word of God is for all Christians till they're dead, and probably not until they're dead, but forever. So that's what's going on in this gospel, and the way it works is, chapter 1, verse 14, The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, Glory as of the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth, verse 16, and and from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. So John saw, heard and touched the word of God living, the son of God. And he saw his glory. He saw that it was the glory of the only son of God. He saw that glory radiant with, overflowing with grace and truth. And then he says in verse 16, and we have received grace upon grace in seeing that. And so the way I understand it, and I've said this many times, I'll say it over and over again until we're done with this gospel. When God grants us the eyes to see Jesus for who He really is, that is glorious, a beam, a beam of glory, light, spiritual recognition comes into our souls and along that beam comes powerful grace. Grace upon grace. And that grace changes you in ways you don't even know need to be changed. Things will be wrought in this room tonight, today. That you can't predict and are totally designed for you by your hearing the word and by hearing it, see the glory of Christ. Because Paul said in 2 Corinthians 3.18, Beholding the glory of the Lord, we are being changed from one degree of glory to the next. That's how people change. They see Him. They see Him. So, there's the agenda in every sermon. Unfold some new glimpse of the glory of Christ Say it as clearly and as faithfully to the text as I can. Call down the anointing of the Holy Spirit on me and the opening of the Holy Spirit for you. Have the light shine into your heart. Grace upon grace flows down the beam of that glory into your heart and the power of God's grace changes you in ways you don't even know that you need to be changed. Things are awakened Possibilities of walking with God that you never thought you could experience. Ways of relating to Him, leaning on Him, enjoying Him, being satisfied in Him, following Him. Rise up in your hearts. I'm talking about a kind of faith that is an experience. It's not just knowledge in your head. It's like eating bread and drinking water, tasting honey. And the more you see of Christ for who he really is in his word, by his spirit, the more you taste him, the more you savor him, the more you know him, the more you treasure him. And it's these experiential dimensions of faith which change you. As long as you're just thinking thoughts about him, you don't get changed. But when you start tasting the glory of those thoughts, when satisfaction in Christ, bigger than the Internet, lands on you, changes happen. I have six observations from this text. We're only going to go through verse 29, and we'll pick it up, Lord willing, next time. Six observations, and they all cluster around your being raised from the dead by the voice of Jesus. So, observation number one. Jesus raises all the dead. All of them. Verse 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here... When the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. Now, at my first reading of that verse, I thought he meant believers only. However, when you get to verse 28, it won't let that interpretation. That's the way the Bible works. You get an idea, you read two verses... Further, and your idea gets corrected. That's just the way it works. You go back and you reread it. Now I'm reading it differently. So you get to verse 28 and it goes like this. Jesus referring back to what he said. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will rise. Will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life. And those who've done evil, to the resurrection of judgment. So who will be raised? All who are in the tombs. Verse 28, you see that phrase? All who are in the tombs. That's everybody who's dead. And who does that include? Verse 29, it includes those who will be raised to life and those who will be raised to judgment. In other words, believers and unbelievers, sinners and righteous Everybody, when Jesus issues the command, everybody will rise from the dead. Daniel 12, verse 2, says it. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to the shame and everlasting contempt. Acts chapter 24, verse 15 Paul says to Felix on trial, there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So biblically, this is not unusual. Everybody will be raised from the dead. Let that sink in. Let it sink in mainly so that you see who Jesus is. <laughs> Everybody who's ever died obeys in their decomposed bodies the voice of Jesus. And they rise from the dead bodily. Millions of Chinese will rise. Nigerians, Indonesians, Germans will rise. Julius Caesar, Jesus will raise from the dead. Judas Iscariot will be raised by Jesus from the dead. The prophet Isaiah will be raised from the dead. Michael Angelo will be raised by Jesus from the dead. Johann Sebastian Bach will be raised from the dead. Adolf Hitler will be raised from the dead. Marilyn Monroe will be raised from the dead by Jesus. Kurt Cobain will be raised from the dead by Jesus. Princess Diana will be raised from the dead by Jesus. Michael Jackson will be raised from the dead by Jesus. And Ted Kennedy will be raised from the dead by Jesus. Everybody will be raised and face him. No exceptions anywhere on this little planet. He is God. Let it sink in whom we're dealing with here. This is no small thing. You're going to die. And millions of people have gone before you. And you will be raised. And if you're a believer... Not all of you on every campus were singing what we just sang, but that's a great song. Observation number two, Jesus raises all the dead by his mighty voice, by his mighty voice. Verse 25, second half of the verse, the dead will hear the voice of the son of God and those who hear him We'll live. Paul, in First Thessalonians, talks about the second coming. And he says this in First Thessalonians 4:16, "The Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel. And with the sound of a trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Whose cry is it in First Thessalonians? The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command. Could be the angels. Some scholars say that could be God, the father's shout because the Old Testament says God will do this. Or it could be Jesus own voice. Whatever Paul meant by that cry, it is clear from John 5:25 that Jesus raises people by his voice. Hebrews 1-3 says, He upholds the universe by the word of His power. So right now, this building, this planet, this solar system, the Milky Way galaxy, the clusters of galaxies in which it falls and All the billions of galaxies in this ever-expanding, apparently, universe is held moment by moment in being by Jesus' Word. These are things that should make you worship Him. These are things that should awaken awe in your heart. If he is upholding the flesh of my hands in being and the word of this pulpit, And the roundness of this globe and all the seas and mountains and all the solar system and galaxies, if he's holding it in being by speaking moment by moment, stay in being, stay in being, stay in being being according to my design from the atom to the galaxy, stay there until I decide otherwise. If he's doing that, then the voice at the resurrection is simply A subcategory of that to the decomposed bodies of the world saying, come back. And they do. He's God and he can do that no matter how many molecules have been shared by the same bodies. Stand in awe of this Jesus Stand in awe of the power of his voice. When he speaks in the office of creator, nothingness obeys. When he speaks in his office as one who raises the dead, decomposed matter obeys. We have seen his glory. This is why why John said these things. We have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father. He's either a lunatic or we have seen God. Observation number three. The hour of the resurrection has come. Verse 25 again. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here. Both. Both is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. So in what sense does John mean it's already there? Now, I suspect there's more than one sense in which he means this. I'm just going to fasten on one. I think one is really clear. Every time... Jesus did a miracle, a healing, an exorcism, a resurrection from the dead. He was bringing the future, last day glory, into the present, doing a little bit of it to show us now what it will be like then. That's the point of the already. Jesus breaks into the world as the one who will break in at the last day. And instead of doing everything he'll do, he gives samples. So he, he heals a man at Bethesda to say, that's the way it will be. There won't be any sickness in the age to come. He delivers a man from 2,000 demons to say, that's the way it will be. There will be no demons in the age to come. No Satan. He's going to be totally cast out. And he raises three people from the dead. A little girl, the widow's son at Nain, and Lazarus to say, that's the way it will be. At the last day everybody is coming out of the grave. I'll show you in 3 that I can do this. Now, in the gospel of John, he he does this in such a way as to confirm, I think, that we're on the right track by raising Lazarus from the dead the way he does. So, you might want to go to chapter 11. Because I think when he says here, the hour is coming and is now here, he means, I'm going to raise Lazarus from the dead. I'm going to show you how, how I, how I will do it. So over in chapter 11, Lazarus has been dead four days. He waited four days intentionally so that nobody would think it was resuscitation and the glory would be greater. He goes to the grieving sisters Mary and Martha and he says to Martha in 1123 chapter 11 verse 23 your brother will rise again and she says understanding only half of what he teaches she says I know that he will rise in the resurrection on the last day I know that She doesn't yet get And that hour is here. An hour is coming and now is here when the dead will rise. So, Jesus says to her, verse 25, I am the resurrection. You you talk future tense, I'm talking present tense. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live, and whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. In other words, the resurrection has come. It's coming to the world. It's me. I am the resurrection. I'm not the source of the resurrection. I am it. He goes to the tomb. Chapter 11, verse 43, he tells them to move the stone. He didn't have to do that. He could have done it himself. They moved the stone. And verse 43, he cried with a loud voice. Okay, that's how he's going to do it. So he's doing it that way now. Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. The hour is here because the mighty voice is here. An hour is coming and now is here when the dead will hear the voice of the son of God. I'm back at chapter five, verse twenty five. When the dead will hear, Lazarus was dead. And what did this voice do? It created what it commanded. Only God can do that. When God commands nothingness, nothingness becomes whatever God tells it to become. And when God addresses the dead to hear and come out, the dead are granted by the power of the command, the obedience to it this is our God in the flesh worship Him trust Him treasure Him stand in awe of Him when you find yourself swept into excitement about some new computer program get rational get rational don't be drunk drunkenness is a sad state it's not real People live in a a drunken stupor, not admiring Jesus 10,000 times more than they admire everything. It's a drunken stupor. We're blind. And those of you who are blind right now are looking funny at me. Everything? Everything! He's 10,000 times more precious, more beautiful, more admirable, more wonderful, more satisfying than anything, period, anything. And we're in a drunken stupor if we don't feel it, which we don't most of the time. Which is why life is so dangerous. So dangerous. We're ready to be dead any moment. If there's any flicker of desire in you to know Him, don't go home and turn on the television. Go after Him. Go after Him. Number four. Observation number four. The power of the Son of God to raise the dead originates in Himself as God. The power of the Son of God To raise the dead originates in himself as God. Now, I'm going to read a verse and see if you see this with me. This is verse 26 now. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. Now, Is the intention of that verse to highlight and draw attention to the Son's dependence on the Father for life and its mediation to the world? That's the question. And my answer to that is it could be taken that way. I don't think that's the focus. There's a sense in which it's true. As the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son also to have life in Himself. Now that's... When did that happen? It's happened forever. The Son is eternally begotten. The Son is... Eternally being given by the Father life. There never was when He was not, as the old theologians used to say. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, with Him, and the Word was God, with Him and God, with Him and God. Which means the Father is always begetting the Son. God had no beginning, The Father had no beginning, Jesus had no beginning, and the Holy Spirit had no beginning. They have always existed in the way they relate forever. And so in one sense, the Son leans on the primacy, the original, the first, all of which are misleading words. On the Father, because there is no first in eternity if both are eternal. So there is a sense in which verse 26 could draw attention to the fact that the Son is in that sense dependent on the Father. I just don't think that's what John's saying here, and here's the reason. He says, As the father has life in himself, in himself, so he has granted the son. It it doesn't say so he has granted the son to give that life to others. It didn't say that. It doesn't say the father is the spring, the son is the stream that flows from the stream, the spring. It doesn't say the Father is the source, the Son is the channel. It does not say that. In fact, he chooses his words, I think, very carefully to avoid saying that. He says, as the Father has life in himself, intrinsically, absolutely, so he relates to the Son in such a way that the Son has life, same phrase, in himself, Intrinsically, absolutely. Therefore, when the Son gives life to another, he acts from himself within. He's not just a pipe. He's not just a channel. He's not just a stream. We're streams. He's God. Observation number five, nevertheless, it is crucial that this son of God also be a son of man in order to be qualified for his role in judgment. Nevertheless, in spite of all I've made of his grandeur, he must be a son of man, that is a human. in order to qualify for his role to judge all human beings when he raises them from the dead. Now, I'm aware, as many of you are, that the term son of man... Oh, let me read the verse. Verse 27. Verse 27. And he has given him authority to execute judgment... Because he is the Son of Man. So now you see where I'm getting it. He has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Now, I'm aware, as, as lots of you are, that the phrase Son of Man can and is often used as a high, holy, even divine title from Daniel 7, verse 13. One like a son of man coming into the presence of God and being authorized in that way. However, I don't think that's what is going on here. I think he's saying, in God's way of reckoning, the judge of the universe, the one who raises all humans from the dead, must be a vulnerable human. Let me give you a few reasons why I think this. Acts chapter 13 verse 30, chapter 17 verse 31. Listen to Paul on Mars Hill about this issue. God has fixed a day. This is Acts 17 31. God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Even more significant to me is John's own writing in Revelation 5. See if you follow me. Chapter 5 of Revelation goes like this. Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? Here's a scroll. It's got seven seals on it. And for each one to be opened was a picture of the unfolding of God's judgments toward the end of history. Break a seal, boom. Break a seal, boom. God's judgments are coming into the world, and the cry goes out, who is worthy to open the seal? That is, who is worthy to be a judge, to function at such a, a level of authority in the world? Who, who can do that? And, and nobody was found. And John started weeping and weeping that nobody was worthy. And then you read in uh, Revelation 5, Uh 5, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, a lion, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seals. And then, and between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb. So the lion is a lamb. I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. And then drop down to verse 9 of Revelation 5 and it says, And they sang a new song. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain. God cannot be slain. He had to be a man in order to be slain. His lion-like, son-like power had to become a lamb-like, man-like weakness. So I think what Jesus is saying is that he has given him authority to execute judgment because he was a man, vulnerable, suffering, tempted, tested, in every point, like we are, yet without sin. If you ask me why now, and I ask me why, why would, why would he do it this way? Why is this considered by God to be so crucial? I think his answer would be, God deems it fitting that human beings be judged by someone who knows what it's like to be a human being. There's a lot going on here that I'm sure I don't understand. God deems it fitting, appropriate, suitable. That at the last day, when we look into the eyes of our judge, we are looking into the eyes of one like ourselves who were tempted and tested and suffered and died like we had to be tempted. And then here's the clincher. And he did it for us I think that much of everyone's eyes will be opened and there will be no faulting God anymore my judge was my Savior if I would have had him I don't think it's an accident that in order to function as judge in God's reckoning, you have to be a vulnerable, weak, suffering, tempted, tested, crucified man, human. Finally, number six, observation number six eternal life and eternal judgment at the last day will be in accord with our deeds good or evil eternal judgment at the last day for everybody will be in accord I'm saying in accord with rather than based on and you'll see why in accord with our deeds our lives whether good or evil and Let's read verses 28 and 29. Start in the middle of verse or near the end of verse 28. All who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So the deciding factor in accord with which judgment will happen is our deeds. Do good, you go into life. Do evil, you go into judgment. Which, of course, makes all of us Protestants who love the doctrine of justification by faith alone a little bit, hmm. Hmm. They're not contradictory. This is so important, and it'll take three or four minutes, and then we'll be done. Please, if you haven't listened to anything, put your thinking cap on and get this. This does not mean judgment, if you've done good, age to come in heaven. If you've done evil, you go to hell. This does not mean that we are justified by our works, good works or that God is on our side because of our good works or that we are united to Christ by our good works it means the reverse if you are justified by faith your faith will produce good works if God is on your side He will empower you to do good works. If you are united to Christ, you will bear the fruit of good works. And in this way, our good works become the evidence, the confirmation, the verification at the judgment day that we were justified by faith alone That God was on our side by grace alone, and that we were united to Christ before we did any good works. Now, why do I think John believes that? That just sounds like theological, reformed, soteriology being plopped on the text. Well, you decide. I base it on chapter 15 and what he says about the vine and the branch. I just want to know how Jesus understands this. There's lots of ways to understand. We will be judged according to our works. And I'm arguing, if you're justified by faith, if God is totally for you and not against you by grace, if you are united to Jesus Christ, your life will change. won't become perfect. There's no judgment according to perfection here. He's just going to find some evidence in your file that you were born again. That you trusted Jesus. There's going to be changes. And you'll find them. You pull them out of the file, lay them on the table. says, good, there's evidence. It's not the basis of your salvation. It's just the evidence that you were united to Jesus. Now, where do I get that? In John. I don't know where it comes from. In John. And it comes from chapter, chapter 15. Look, this is, I'm the vine, you are the branches, right? Look at verse 5 of John 15. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. And I think the fruit here is love, primarily and more. That's what God's going to look for. The evidence of love, because faith works through love. I am am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, apart from me, you can do nothing. (laughs) If you can do nothing without being united to the vine, good works can't put you in the vine. Are we there? Apart from being united to me, there are no good works. Oh, there's lots of morality out there. God's not the least interested in that sort of stuff. There are no Christ-exalting, Spirit-dependent, Bible-saturated, faithful lives apart from being connected vitally to the vine so that Jesus' life is flowing in you and the fruit are His. That's what it says. Apart from me, you can do no good works, therefore good works can't be the means by which you get connected to Jesus. Therefore, when you stand before the judgment and he looks for fruit, he's not looking for the kinds of deeds that got you saved. They don't get you saved. Only saved people can do them. We are saved by grace, through faith that not of ourselves, it is the gift of God. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Does anybody know the next phrase? Not enough. For good works. We're not saved by good works. We're saved for good works and all the saved do them. So that when your file is opened at the judgment, after he raises you from the dead, there's some evidences. I mean, you may have a file that's a D minus file. I suspect a lot of us will. But there'll be a few good test scores in there. And God knows the evidence of the new birth. He knows You may not always be able to look into others and say, I can tell exactly by their behavior that they must be born again. But God can. You will be raised from the dead someday. Your decomposed body will obey the voice of God. You will rise from the dead and you will stand face to face with the one who was slain on your behalf. He was tempted in every way, and he didn't sin, and he's perfectly qualified to pass judgment on you, and he will, with great grace, examine your file, and he will issue you into the age to come of life or into eternal judgment according to the evidence that you have trusted him. According to the evidence that you've been united to him like a branch to a vine. According to the evidence that you have been justified by faith alone. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I have tried to explain these things many, many years and I know for the natural mind, how difficult this is to grasp. We are wired to be legalists. And therefore somebody's going to walk out of here and state exactly the opposite of what I have said. I just ask that you minimize that. I pray that people would be granted light light on their minds, to see, perhaps for the first time, oh, I see how justification by faith alone works together with judgment according to works. I see it. And it doesn't threaten their faith. It intensifies it. To say with the Apostle Paul, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for God is the one who is at work in you, to will And to do his good pleasure. So come at the South Campus. And at the North Campus. And hear. And do your saving, sanctifying work. So that we will worship the one whose voice will raise the dead. In his name we pray. Amen.